This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. The question I'd like to consider tonight and discuss is how can we be happy in our lives? <laughs> Basic question. So there are two overarching understandings that are really at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. There are two ways of understanding ourselves and the world that provide a bridge between our meditative insights and how we choose to live our lives. And these are the teachings on karma and on emptiness. So questions often arise, how do these two teachings fit together? Very commonly people will ask, if there's no self, who experiences karmic results. If there's no self, who is it that's reborn? If everything's empty, why does it matter what we do? So these are the questions that come up as we consider the teachings on karma on the one hand and emptiness on the other. What we come to understand is that although all phenomena everything that arises is insubstantial and empty of self, still there is a lawful unfolding, there is a lawful process to the unfolding of our lives. If we plant an apple seed, we don't get a mango tree. There are laws governing how things happen. And so we need to understand that everything is arising out of particular and lawful causes and conditions. And each moment has an imprint on the moment that follows.
So in the Buddhist understanding, this moment-to-moment lawful unfolding is true both within this lifetime and also from life to life. So for example, it's said that the quality of mind at the moment of death, called death consciousness, conditions the arising of rebirth consciousness, just as one moment in this life conditions the next. So as an example, that may give some indication of how this happens. If you take a seal and you imprint it in wax, you know, in a soft wax, and you take the seal away, the imprint is there, but nothing is carried over from the seal to the wax. So there's no self carried over, either from moment to moment now, or from life to life, and yet each moment is imprinting the next. And this is the process of our conditioning. Trungpa Rinpoche (coughs) put it more succinctly when someone asked him, what is it that's reborn? He said, your neurosis. And it was really a very clever and apt answer. Because what is reborn are the underlying habit patterns, the underlying tendencies, both wholesome and unwholesome. So the possibility for happiness, both for ourselves individually and also collectively for the world, rests on one basic understanding. And that is that the unfolding of our lives begins in our minds. So we really have to absorb that. And the Buddha highlighted it in the very first verses in the collection of the Dhammapada when he says the mind is the forerunner of all things. Everything we do, all our actions have, the, have their origin in our minds. So we need to explore, we need to understand the nature of this mind and understand how it is that it manifests in the world. So as we were speaking, maybe it was this morning or the other morning, the most fundamental aspect of mind is consciousness. And consciousness is that faculty which simply knows, or it cognizes the object. Knows a sight, or a sound, or a smell, or a taste, or a sensation, or a thought. But consciousness, this knowing faculty, doesn't arise alone. It arises together with an assortment, a varied assortment of mental factors or mental qualities. And these mental qualities condition or color the consciousness. The mental factors color the mind in various ways. And it's these mental factors which condition and recondition all the patterns of our lives. Factors like love and fear and anger and joy and happiness and grief and wisdom, and ignorance, and mindfulness, and concentration, and hatred. All of these 
are not I, not self, they're impersonal factors of mind, but each one functions in their own way. And each one is conditioning our mind in a particular way. So sitting here on retreat, which is this very special environment, and also when we pay a wise attention to our lives in the world, it brings us a very immediate and intimate experience of what brings happiness and what brings suffering. If we're paying attention, it's no longer abstract, it's no longer theory. We can actually see for ourselves what are the qualities of mind that bring peace? What are the qualities of mind that bring disturbance? It's no longer second-hand knowledge because we're seeing it for ourselves. And it's in this direct seeing that knowledge is transformed into wisdom. So Buddha expressed this wisdom coming from his own direct experience of his mind in the world. He expressed this understanding of what leads to what, what conditions what. He expressed this as the law of karma. And this is the understanding that all volitional actions, whether of our bodies, speech, or mind, all volitional or intentional actions have the power or contain within them the power to bring about results. So it is this mental factor, particular mental factor of volition, that is the karmic force in our lives. So it's helpful to look a little more closely at precisely what this mental factor of volition is and how we experience it. Notice when, notice the moment when you're about to say something or do something. In that moment, there is that energetic impulse to do. There's a choice. There's the willing of an action. We could call it the command moment in the mind that actually moves us to act. So this volition or intention is something more than simply a thought arising in the mind. It's not the thought to do something. It's that volitional impulse that actually initiates the action. In the Abhidhamma, it describes volition as that force which organizes and gathers together and directs all the other factors of mind to accomplish a particular aim. Now, so volition is a powerful factor. We could call it the chief of staff of mind because it's organizing all the other factors. Although these moments of volition are in, or intention are very quick, and very small, they contain a huge power, which is the power to bring about future results. 
Think of the power of a seed. A seed can be so small, and yet it contains within it the potential to become a huge tree, bearing many fruits, not just one fruit. It bears many fruits. That's the power of each of our intentions. We can't fully understand the Buddha's teaching without understanding this basic law of cause and effect. This is essential because it's the very essence of discerning what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Knowing what brings about good results, what brings about suffering. So most of us probably have some understanding and experience of this law of karma, the law of cause and effect, at least to some extent. But the really interesting question to ask ourselves is, do we remember this? Do we remember the truth of this law in the actual moments of deciding to act? Is this what comes up in our minds? As we're about to act, remembering this volition is going to bring results, not only in the immediate action which might follow, but also future results. And in the Buddha's teaching, future results not only in this lifetime, but over many lifetimes. There can be tremendous power in very small things. I read someplace uh, that Einstein, in talking about his famous formula E equals MC squared, said that the energy contained in a raisin is enough to power all the energy needs of New York City for a day. One raisin. Are we aware of that when we eat a raisin? Uh, Probably not. We need to have that kind of perspective when we're being mindful of volition in the mind. Because just like the raisin, this very small thing contains a huge power. And the Buddha pointed to this again and again. Now, intentions or volitions are ethically neutral. They're just the energetic force which impels an action. What determines the particular karmic fruit of the volition is the motivation associated with it. And so the Buddha talked of three wholesome and three unwholesome roots, with which you're very familiar. I talked of the three wholesome roots as being non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And the three unwholesome roots, the opposite, greed, hatred, and delusion. So those are the motivations we need to look for when we're being mindful or assessing the volitions behind our action. What is motivating them? There's one... Uh, to short Tibetan teaching, which kind of encapsulates the importance of this, that says everything rests on the tip of motivation. 
That's how important it is to see and to be clear about what our motivations are. The problem is that these motivations, like intentions, can be very quick and they can be very small and sometimes it's not clear. You know, we act and we may not be aware of the motivation. Or there may be mixed motivations in an action. Now, just a simple, a simple action of giving, of generosity. That can come from many different places. You know, the, the motivation for generosity could be metta, could be loving-kindness and caring, could be compassion. Is it mixed with an expectation of receiving something back? So that's another motivation that could be associated with the volition to give. Are we giving out of guilt? It's another kind of generosity, mixed motivation. So discovering and understanding our motivations is one of the great gifts of mindfulness. And this is, this is one of the great powers of mindfulness. It enables us, with practice and with, with honesty, you know, about ourselves, we really take an interest and look, okay, what's the motivation here? Is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? Of course, what we discover is expressed by one character in the novel Zorba the Greek by Cousin Zakis, who said, self-knowledge is always bad news. You know, so I think most meditators are familiar with that because we're beginning to see sides of ourselves and aspects of our motivations that may not be wholesome. But when we take the care and the interest to really look, we'll probably find that we're less good and less bad than we imagine. You know, we're all a mix. So volition is the force in the mind that initiates the action and contains the energy to bring about a result. That's intention of volition, the energetic impulse. It's motivation which determines what particular result happens. It's the motivation which determines the fruit. So the challenge in our practice is to integrate the understanding of this law of karma, of cause and effect, with our growing insight into emptiness into selflessness. That is the selfless, insubstantial nature of everything that arises. And a few teachers kind of encapsulated how these two levels of understanding work together. So the Dalai Lama said, a Buddha perceives the ultimate truth, emptiness, while leaving conventional truth law of karma, 
untouched. So at the same time as one is perceiving the emptiness of everything, the law of karma is determining how phenomena unfolds, how our lives unfold. Padmasambhava, the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet, and one one of the greatest of the masters, said, though my view is as vast as the sky, as limitless as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So these are not contradictory. We have to hold both at the same time. The vast view of emptiness and this impeccable attention to our intentions, to our volitions. And the Korean Zen master's son's name probably captured it the best when he said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. You know, and that's what we need to hold. We need to keep both in mind. Although it takes the mind of a Buddha to fully understand how karma unfolds throughout a lifetime and over many lifetimes, still we can see for ourselves in many ways how the various activities of our body, speech, and mind bring about different results. And we need to learn to pay attention to that. So there's one kind of karma which people often overlook, and it's called present karma. That is the karma, the result that's happening right now in the present moment. So we can experience this in different ways. Notice the immediate effects of different mind states as they arise. How does it feel when there's the experience of fear? How does it feel when there's the experience of love or happiness or anger or agitation? or concentration. We can just go through the whole list. How does it feel when we're being truthful? How does it feel when we're being dishonest? If we're being aware, if we're being mindful of these states of mind as they're arising, we can experience the present karma of them, the immediate result that happens just in the experience of them. Do they bring us happiness or do they bring us suffering right in the moment? We can notice present karma in how people respond to us as these different states are present. How do people respond to us if we're filled with anger or if we're filled with agitation or if we're filled with loving kindness or filled with compassion? People usually will respond to us in very different ways. we can experience present karma in yet another way because it affects our relationship to the actions we're undertaking. The Duke 
degree to which present qualities affect the outcome. So, for example, we can see for ourselves how accomplishing a certain goal, whatever that goal may be for ourselves, how is the outcome affected by the quality, the presence or lack of energy, of perseverance, of wisdom? So these factors in the mind have a very immediate karmic result. You know, and some bring about a good result, one that we're aiming for, and some hinder that result. And it's easy to see. This is not complicated. So present karma, that's one whole area of investigation. Another way we can understand the working of karma in our lives very immediately is seeing how the mind contains impressions of all our past experiences. I mean, have you noticed that? We can be sitting here and the mind can be either occasionally remembering you know, things for the past, sometimes flooded by memories, sometimes things we didn't even know we remembered come up to the surface. And it's amazing to me, just in considering mind as a phenomenon, this intangible, invisible, ephemeral phenomenon, consciousness, with all its mental factors, it actually contains the impression of everything we ever experienced. So this is, this is quite amazing. And it becomes the source of either happiness or remorse. You know, when we think or remember past wholesome actions, there's a great delight which arises. And when we remember past unwholesome actions, then we feel regret or remorse. It's very interesting just to to be with all this. You know, for years, being on retreat, just at different times I would remember, you know, the stupid, unkind things I did as a kid. And they would come very vividly in my mind. And just recently, it was uh, last summer, I attended my 50th high school reunion. (laughs) And it was the first time I I had seen most of these people in 50 years. But some of them had been in my mind, (laughs) had accompanied me on many of my retreats. (laughs) Uh, particularly, Particularly those you know, where I had really done something not very nice. But it was great because I went to this reunion and I saw, you know, I met, I met some of these people. And first I just asked them, do you remember when I did this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they remembered very well. And it was wonderful to have the chance to apologize. You know, to say, yeah, that, that was really unthinking. And, So we may not always have the opportunity to apologize in person. But this power of mind that reveals or holds all these past impressions, we can become conscious of it. You know, instead of it being sort of buried someplace, it's really a way of purifying the mind. You know, as it comes up to see it, and whether it's in person or just in oneself, 
you know, to, to ask for forgiveness or to apologize or to acknowledge that that was unskillful. Sometimes the mind holds the impressions or retains internalized feelings of anger or grief or rage or unworthiness or fear. And the meditation can be an amazingly healing process. When we first started teaching, this was back in the 70s in this country, one of the people who came to one of our first retreats had been in the Vietnam War as a medic and just had experienced, you know, the horrors of war. And when he came back to the States, he was having all kinds of nightmares and, you know, the impressions were so in his mind. And when he came to retreat, it was his first two-week retreat, all of this was coming up for him. You know, so it was very intense. He was just seeing all the images and having all the feelings. But he was very committed to the practice, and so he was just, he was just watching. He was just being mindful, letting it come up, letting it come up, letting it come up. And it was amazing. After just two weeks, which is a pretty short time given what he had been through, we saw him after the retreat, and he said that the nightmares had completely stopped. And that's the power of bringing awareness to these karmic results, you know, these things arising in the mind. We actually can purify the mind. It's important here, I think, to make the distinction, particularly when we're re-experiencing unwholesome things we've done, to have a clear understanding of the difference between guilt and remorse. And there was one period in my practice where I had been remembering something unskillful and I was feeling a lot of guilt about it. And it was, it was consuming my mind. But after a while, I mean, it was so much suffering, you know, because I was really caught in that. I just started to take this in, what is going on here? You know, how am I so caught in this? And as I investigated the feeling of guilt, I saw something very liberating. I saw that guilt is just a trick of the ego. Because in guilt, there's a lot of I. I'm so bad. You know, and all that self-judgment. And so I began to see it just as a trick of Mara. You know, Mara coming and seducing us into creating a sense of self in a negative way. You know, the bad me. And I began to see, you know, in the, in the suttas, sometimes the Buddha will say, Mara, I see you. And then Mara just disappears. So I kind of developed this technique for myself, wagging the finger at Mara. So every time the guilt came, oh, Mara, I see you. And I saw the difference then between guilt, which is this ego trip, and remorse, which is a kind of wise understanding. Yeah, did something unskillful. I see it. I understand it. And it can be the source of wisdom, the wisdom of future restraint. And we let it go. Because we really have the wisdom of seeing the impermanence of it, 
the selflessness of it. So it both acknowledges the unwholesome aspect, but we're not strengthening the wrong view of self in relationship to it. And this is tremendously important. So there's the karma, present karma. There's the karma of the mind retaining the impressions of all our experiences and coming to the surface. There's also the karma that plays itself out in how our practice unfolds. The Buddha talked of four ways the person's practice can unfold. It can be slow and painful. It can be slow and pleasant. It can be fast and painful or fast and pleasant. So I think for most of us, we're in the first category, (laughs) slow and painful. But however it happens to be, it's just... It's just an impersonal conditioning, depending on our past karma. So there are two stories which kind of illustrate this, which I like a lot. One I just came across, and it was a story of somebody in the Buddha's time who came to him, some Brahmin, you know, in one of the Indian villages, came to the Buddha, and the Buddha... Uh, There were two whole discourses in the text devoted to the Buddha teaching this guy. But each time, he just walked away. He wasn't particularly interested, didn't connect. And he came back again for some reason. The Buddha, again, a whole discourse, walked away, wasn't interested. So the commentary in Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, mentions this in one of his collections. He said that hundreds of years later, you know, that Brahmin in the time of the Buddha was reborn in Sri Lanka and became one of the famous Sri Lankan Arhans. And the Buddha somehow had seen you know, all this happening, and so it was just planting the seeds in the mind stream, which bore fruit you know, many lifetimes and hundreds of years later. So I kind of like that. It just you know, expands the vision of what we're doing. We're planting a lot of seeds. I mean, not only are we not disinterested, we're actually applying ourselves in practice in a very intensive way. So powerful seeds are being planted. They'll bear fruit in their own way, in their own time. So the other story I really like is, comes from uh, the Terigata, which is the story of... Uh, called the, the Songs of the Nuns, the, the Arhant Nuns from the Buddha's time. And there's a collection of uh, verses of these nuns, and they're really wonderful. So this is what one of them wrote. It is 25 years since I went forth, not even for the duration of a snap of the fingers have I obtained stilling of mind, drenched with desire for sense pleasures, holding out my arms, Crying out, I entered the monastery. And then, at this particular time, after 25 years, having heard the teachings, sat down to one side and became an arhant. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no knowing. 
you know, 25 years, not a moment of peace. But something was happening all that time. You know, the, the qualities were being ripened and matured. So it's helpful to have this understanding, you know, that the very way our practice unfolds is just a karmic conditioning. It's impersonal forces, so we don't take it personally when we're going through difficult times. It's just part of the process. We can also understand this law of karma when we see how the mind develops you know, certain habits and certain patterns through repeated actions. And so we can really see the development of each of our personalities. You know, whether it's a fearful personality or a loving one or an angry one or a truthful one. The Buddha talked, as you know, of the different personality types, the some the greed type, the aversive type, the deluded type, you know, and their opposites. In understanding this, it's really helpful to not underestimate the power of small actions. Because everything we do, every time we act, we're practicing that particular quality of mind. Every time we act out of anger, we're practicing anger. Every time we're truthful, we're practicing truthfulness. So we might practice small acts of renunciation, you know, which is really just another word for non-addiction. Maybe it would be just the small act, the momentary act of refraining from wrong speech, or letting a desire simply arise in the mind and pass away without acting on it. That's not insignificant. On my retreats, <laughs> being the greedy type, so lots of desires come up in the mind. And when I'm on retreat, it's like every time I can see a desire arise in the mind and I just watch it come and go, it feels like this great victory over Mara. You know, Mara's, oh, okay, just let it come and go. Don't act on it. And so it strengthens, it strengthens that quality of non-addiction. You know, we don't so much like the word renunciation, that feels too gloomy. But when we think of it as non-addiction, we can really taste the flavor of freedom of that. In daily life, just in practicing these small moments, we might practice generosity every time the thought arises to give, now, rather than kind of second-guess ourselves, and should I do it, shouldn't I do it, is it too much, whatever, whatever our thoughts may be. A practice could be, when a thought arises to give, we do it. And then generosity becomes habituated. That becomes a power and a strength in the mind. So we make this whole reflection on karma, understanding that the motivations behind our actions will bear fruit. When we, when we have that understanding in our minds, 
then we can practice in a very conscious way, acting on the, unho- on the wholesome motivations, letting go of the unwholesome motivations. So it becomes very vivid, it becomes very alive. Our whole life becomes our practice. We can also understand karma by understanding how different kinds of actions lead to very specific kinds of results. There's one sutta where someone came to the Buddha and was just commenting on the tremendous variety of people's experiences in this world. And so that person asked the Buddha, why are there so many differences? The Buddha gave, it's quite a detailed sutta, and I'll just highlight a few of the the points he made. He said the differences are due to people's karma. You know, and so the causes behind certain results, you know, gentle speech, he said, kind speech results in beauty. Generosity results in abundance. Non-harming results in good health, you know, and then they're opposite as well. So he gave very specific uh, guidelines for what these particular actions bring in terms of karmic results. And he described people in four situations. He described people in shadow going towards more shadow. He described people in light going towards shadow. He described people in shadow going towards light and people in light going towards light. So what did he mean by that? There are people in difficult circumstances doing the very things which are going to lead to more difficult circumstances. Those in difficult circumstances doing those things which are going to lead to very happy results. Those in good circumstances, out of ignorance, doing the very things that are going to lead to suffering. And then people in good circumstances doing those things which lead to more good results. So just as many of us may be in the slow, painful path of practice, I think most of us are also in a situation of light going towards more light. Now, given the world, most of us are in pretty good circumstances. And in our practice and in our understanding, we're in good circumstances, practicing that which leads to even more happiness and well-being. So it's good to reflect on this. You know, it can become a source of real inspiration. So as we reflect on this law of karma, which is so central to the Buddhist teachings, we also need to be very careful to take a lot of care in not falling into some profound misunderstandings of it. Because sometimes people confuse the teachings of karma with attitudes of blame or judgment. 
or resignation or indifference. You know, we can get caught up in judging ourselves or the unfortunate tendency, you know, when people start blaming the victim, that somehow it's their fault. We can understand how situations have causes and conditions behind them. Karma being one of them, although not the only one, and still respond to present suffering, regardless of the cause and condition behind it, with metta and compassion. To express karma with that sense of uncaring or indifference, oh, it's just their karma. That's why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Is a real disconnect from the Dharma. It's a disconnect from these feelings of love and compassion. Bob Thurman, who's a professor of Buddhism at Columbia, uh, he had a wonderful example uh, for our trip through samsara. He said, of course, teaching in New York, he used the example of a subway. So he said, imagine yourself in a subway car with people in all kinds of conditions. You know, some are really good and prosperous and happy. Some are really sick or ill or wretched in one way or another. Kind of the the whole human condition is represented in the car. And then he said, imagine you're on this subway car with all of these different people for eternity. How would you relate to all these people? If we knew that we were with this group of people for eternity, wouldn't we want everybody to be happy? (laughs) Because their happiness would help create our own happiness. You know, if if we're on the subway car with these people who are really in a miserable state, really prevents us from an experience of our own fullness of being. And so I love that because that's really our situation. You know, we're, we're, on, this, we're on this karmic journey over lifetimes accompanied by all other beings. And to really see that our happiness is inextricably mingled with everyone else's happiness So then we can understand that people are experiencing things in part because of their karma, their past actions. But that doesn't in any way mitigate our intention of loving care and compassion to alleviate the suffering of all. So it's helpful and important to see this because, as I say, sometimes people use the teaching of karma, misuse it to be indifferent or to be apathetic or to be uncaring, and that's a misunderstanding. We also need to understand that the Buddhist teaching on karma to be fully understood really has to be seen over lifetimes. It's impossible to grasp this law of cause and effect and of how our actions bring results simply within the context of a single life. 
and you know there's there's so many examples of people you know who have led very good lives or, or young children experiencing really difficult things so it doesn't make sense to look at karmic results just within one lifetime it has to be understood over many and of course whether one believes previous or future lives or not this is part of the Buddha's teaching and the context for understanding this. There's a Tibetan prayer, really a prayer of loving kindness, which just beautifully expresses the understanding of cause and effect, the understanding of the law of karma in terms of our relationship with others. And it's very simple. It's, it's really a metta prayer. It says, may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. It acknowledges that our happiness or suffering is not happening randomly. It's happening. It arises because of causes. And so we're wishing both for ourselves and for others, may there be happiness in the causes of happiness. May we be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. So it's a little life experiment. Notice how even a provisional understanding of the law of karma that our actions bring results, both in the present and in the future. Notice how this understanding changes our relationship to our experience. I mean, it's been very interesting for me over all these years because, uh, as I mentioned last month, uh, I, like probably most of you, didn't grow up with this understanding. I didn't grow up with a Buddhist worldview or notion of rebirth or law of karma. I mean, that wasn't really part of it. But in practicing and learning about the teachings and then really seeing, okay, well, what does this do to how I'm living my life? There were some very interesting observations. First, by reflecting on this law of karma personally, you know, in one's own life, I found there's a much greater acceptance of what's arising, whether it's on the pleasant side or the unpleasant side, without resentment or without pride. Because you see, yeah, this is just an impersonal law of cause and effect. And the conditions of life keep changing. You know, what we've talked about, the, the eight great vicissitudes of life, you know, of pleasure and pain and gain and loss, and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, or just these changes that are common to everybody's life, even, even the Buddhas. Accepting these changes as part of our karmic unfolding does not imply passivity you know, or resignation. Rather, it opens the door to appropriate responses and to engaged action. 
with an understanding of the law of karma, we can really engage with a wise and appropriate response rather than simply respond out of reactivity. And perhaps most importantly, through understanding the law of karma, we begin to take more responsibility for our lives. You know, instead of just sleepwalking through our lives and hoping for the best, we begin to take a longer range view of things, which when we do that, leads to a stronger interest in the choices we make and the motivations behind the choices. And so this becomes, this becomes a very vivid part of our lives. We're, we're observing as we're acting in the world, what's the, what's the motivation you know, behind this action associated with this volition? And reflecting on the law of karma can also become a tremendously powerful motivating force for our practice as we reflect on the karmic blessings of having the conditions to practice. Because it doesn't take much in observing the world to see how rare it is. How many people, you know, for whom all the conditions come together to be in a situation like this, where there's nothing you have to do during the day except be aware. That's your task, that's your work, that's your job. It's pretty amazing. It's an amazing blessing. You know, why? It came about through the fruit of our own past karma, our own past actions. And so even when we're struggling or going through difficulties, you know, the the famous uh, image of the Bodhisattva on the night of his enlightenment when Mara challenged his right to be seeking enlightenment and it just touched the earth. It said that, you know, there's tremendous, I don't know, roar or quake or something. The earth bearing witness to his right to be there because of all his past wholesome deeds, his actions which created the opportunity, created the field for his great awakening. So we all have that. We've all accomplished that, which brings us here. So it's this reflection which can really inspire you know, our practice, recognizing how rare and precious it is. So I'm going to condense the next 15 minutes of the talk into two minutes. <laughs> But one, it's important to understand that karma is not a mechanistic closed system. It's not that, oh, we did this and therefore this is going to happen. It's not like that at all. Because how we're acting in the present is continually feeding in and influencing the process. So it's a very dynamic, transforming process at work. And the Buddha spoke of how we can surround different unwholesome actions that we might have done with wholesome actions in the present. 
And that begins to weaken the effect, the unwholesome results. It's like the present purity of mind affects the karmic unfolding. And present purity of mind draws to us the past wholesome actions and the fruit of those actions. And when the mind in the present is impure, you know, filled with defilements, acting on unwholesome motivations, it draws the karmic result of past unwholesome actions. So how we are now has this tremendous influence in our own karmic unfolding. So the Buddha called understanding the law of karma, he called it the light of the world. Because it's knowing what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. When we know this, when we have this knowledge and understanding, it allows us the freedom to make wiser choices. It really allows us to shape our destinies. It's this great empowerment of our beings. So I'll just close with a haiku by famous Japanese poet Basho, which, which captures this whole unfolding karmic process of our lives. He wrote, the temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. Our actions may be over, but the karmic fruits keep arising. So may our actions be wholesome and the karmic fruits bring happiness. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash insight hour.